for years and years, I think probably eight years, we were the largest alpaca farm in the Midwest. Yep, I ran nothing less than 300 alpaca for about eight years. Welcome to Tangled Taproot, where we explore the unique stories of small-scale farmers in the Midwest. I'm your co-host, Jackson. I'm Kristen. I'm John Cowan. And this is a production of Milk and Hummus. What is Milk and Hummus? We make a flavorful hummus and ready-to-drink plant-based lattes that focus on locally sourced ingredients, sustainable packaging, and the humble chickpea. In this episode, we talk with Jeff Suchlin, farmer and artisan of Alpacas of Troy. Alpacas of Troy is located just northwest of St. Louis, Missouri, and it comprises about 50 acres of land that has been passed down from his great-grandfather. Yeah, it's a vertically integrated farm. Basically, he makes alpaca fiber and is able to mill it on site. What you, would you say his name was? Jeff Suchlin. 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 Are you saying that right? I think what was funny is he didn't know he didn't know that he, he was saying it right. <laughs> yeah, he, he was tentative about the pronunciation of his own name. Well, what does Suchlin mean? He said, "What is it? Search of land." Search for land. Yeah, search for land. It's German. Suchlin. <laughs> yes, we just need to learn some more German, and we'll be fine. So what Jeff did that was pretty pretty awesome. I mean, his grandfather, sorry, his great great grandfather started in the cattle raising cattle industry. Beef. Gr- beef industry. His great grandfather, so his grandfather after that, then his father, and then... And then, and then not, not so much him. No. He decided to make a turn. Well, he saw how hard that his father worked. He said that he worked, you know, like 30 hours a week and would make like $15,000 a year. The comedy so industry. He, yeah. So he had like a, a separate business. And he was like, no, if I'm going to be a farmer, then I want to I wanna do this all the way, which is super cool. I think what's cool also about about him is it's, he's very different from a lot of the other people that we've interviewed so far. Like he has a farming background on both sides of his family. Yeah. Yeah. Like his mom with the his mom's fa- side of the family were sheep herders. Um, and then with his dad with the with the with the cow farming. So, yeah, they almost put him as like in an advantage. One of the things that he really wanted to get away from was the the safety, the the risk element. So he, I think he even had a, a friend who was knocked out from a cow kicking him. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a funny story that is. And well, so uh, sometimes so people like, are nope, down and out. Not, not, <laughs> not anymore. Not, not I, you know what I want to know? I want to what I want to know what this friend did to the cow to get uh, knocked out. <laughs> sometimes it's simply a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time because they don't know how big they are. Like yeah. I've had a friend. You know, I'm from rural Illinois. And she or her husband, I can't remember, got kind of trapped between a cow and the fence, like just the way they were turning and like the clavicle and shoulder got crushed. Like, oh, geez. I mean, it's just like, um, you know, it's like, what is one ton? Like there's the same weight as a car, right? Like there's one ton animal or something. So if you get pinned, you know, yeah. and a lot of times it isn't an aggressive intention. Unless you're talking about, like, bulls, supposedly, because they got this testosterone drive, and that's a whole other animal, so to speak. Alpacas were a safe route for Jeff, where he was pretty confident that he would not get injured and could keep them corralled. It was just a matter of how do we keep them safe and parasite-free. Right. It's quite the journey. It's so funny, though. You're like, okay, let me think of an animal that I can not get killed by. Alpaca, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Probably because it starts with an A. Like, he, like, probably went down. He's like, no, I can't do aardvarks. 
alpacas, though. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't get down to platypus or anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> alpacas, they're, they're pretty cool creatures. I mean, they're really, really unique looking. They're f- super fluffy. Right. And if you ever, like, grabbed one's neck, y- they look real like, thick. thick, but then it just just dissolves, and it's just, just a this little, little, tiny little slender. <laughs> yeah, super, yeah, that's super cool. Rachel. I also suspect that part of the reason why he wanted to do alpacas were not only just because, it wasn't only just because, like, you know, he couldn't die from an alpaca, but also with his history, he said that he, you know, his mom's side of the family, everyone knew how to shear sheep. Um, and so having, like, this, like, sort of, like, hairy animal, like, like an alpaca, which is, you know, similar to a sheep in, in that way, he already had that kind of background. He could easily, easily we do certainly that. learned in our interview how critical and valuable the knowledge of shearing is to yeah. sheep, or in this case, alpaca farming and maintaining a healthy herd. That I, I learned a lot there for sure about right. shearing. Plus the word well, shorn as a piece of vocabulary that most of us have never heard. No, the sheep yeah. has been shorn. It's been shorn. That uh, means they've already been sheared, a everybody. Sheared, Add shorn sheared, to your vocabulary list. A sheared sheep is shorn. It has been Say shorn. That seven times fast. <laughs> okay, well, that's our comedic break for the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. What? Well, I think what's so cool about him is he was so knowledgeable, and it doesn't seem, well, I mean, just based on, because I don't know much about you know, hurting alpaca, but based on like his own testimony, it just seems like he does it very differently than a lot of other alpaca breeders and everything. And so, yeah, he knows how to shear his his alpaca. And he's like, they will be like, oh, this comes from a good bloodline. So let me just sell you this one because it's got to be good. But that means absolutely dick. Can I can I say that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it means dick. Right. And that's one of the sort of the odds odd parts of the industry he was saying is that uh, it is mostly a breeding business and not so much a fiber business, which is what he wanted to be is strictly fiber. And so when he was selecting his animals, if they're not going to make a certain amount of fiber yearly, they got to go. Well, except for the one. Except for that one. Except for the one. He said he that, had it for 10 that years. That lady that only yielded two pounds I, I wonder, a season. I got to wonder why and he kept that And his bare minimum rule was five pounds, five pounds yes. per alpaca or they're going to go. But one lady, she was just so just, soft. Some yeah. of the finest angelic fibers. She and was think, the exception to the rule. Yeah. She must I'm have sorry I didn't get her name, but she is a famous one. <laughs> but uh, what's awesome is that for eight years, Jeff operated the largest alpaca farm in the Midwest, running no less than 300 alpaca. And he also had his own little vertically integrated, his own little mill. Yeah. Outstanding. Really remarkable. That is remarkable. Well, and just the way that the mill came about, too, super cool. A lot of intentional choices there, it sounded like. He was kind of saying, you know, there's so many benefits to not shipping your fiber mm-hmm. out. His, the, the multitude of benefits by milling your own fiber in-house or on your own property with your own mill just guaranteed him uh, not only an allergen-free experience because lanolin with sheep fiber was something that he was very aware of and conscious about and don't want to contaminate his mill with that. So it was just strictly 100% alpaca fiber only. But the other benefit was the ability to cut 
loss by sure. having it there. There were no remnants discarded. He had the choice to keep and utilize whatever fibers well, came from the, his animals. And the wait time. Yeah. My goodness. He said that you send it off to a mill, you don't get it back for six to nine months just because just because they're so backed up. They have so much to do. Yeah. And then I think he said something. But how do you know you're even getting your animals back? Your you animals know? Back. <laughs> it's kind right. of almost like cremation. You're like, well, I don't know who's who's in here. <laughs> anyway, true. sorry. No, yeah, I think I think I, I could be making this completely up, but I think that he said something like he could mill it like one one sheep he could bill and get the benefits from that in like 12 hours or something. Yes. I could be or completely less, making that up. I think it's five, five to eight five hours eight hours, yeah. is what he does now. But when they had the, like a classic old time spinning wheel, mm-hmm. it was 50, five, zero hours to turn fiber into yarn. Wow. Like a hand, like a foot pumped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like in fairy tales, like Cinderella back when, and Snow White. <laughs> back when John was in high school. That's correct. That's oh. correct. <laughs> also, the, uh, the other sustainable aspect of this uh, fiber farm would be their use of seconds. So they have the blanket, which is the the best, or quote unquote, the best quality, quality, yes, right. which is used for the yarn. But then seconds, which is half of the material from the animal is often tossed, not on his farm. Instead, they're used for things like dryer balls, insoles, Cute felted, little, cute little soap. felted animals, right? And little animals. No, but the term you used, you said, you said the, the blanket. Mm-hmm. That was something I, I learned listening to this interview. I was like, oh, okay. Because he was like, oh, yes, the blanket. That's like the, mm-hmm. the bulk. And there were a lot of terms yeah. that he used. I did want a blanket, but literal, <laughs> literal blanket. There from is the, not <laughs> one available to buy yet, folks. But, <laughs> right. No, yeah, no. Blanket just meaning like the bulk of the material, the good material that is, is taken from the alpaca to use for, for the yarn. And then he said, you know, the neck and like the legs. Yeah, and their sport weight and double ply and all of these things that we do not know. A lot of fiber terminology that has left us in the dark. Yeah, he's so knowledgeable about what he does, especially for someone who's only been doing this for about 15 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say he's like expert level for sure. He knows his animals inside and out. You know, also future alpaca Farmers. Oh, another hot tip. Another hot tip. Tune in, folks. Here we there go. There is an unspoken rule that was spoken in this episode. That's right. Ding, 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 so, ding, ding. Do you want to reveal the secret I notes? Think, I think you really should maybe <laughs> listen to this clip that we're about to play. It's true. It's never been recorded before in You've, human so, history, folks. In human You'll, history, this is the first time that you're hearing it here right now on Tangle Taproot. You're welcome. Are you going to tell us? (laughs) (laughs) Do we have to listen? (laughs) Okay, and here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Okay. When you buy an alpaca from someone for the rest of that alpaca's life, you are 100% it is okay for you to contact the person you bought it from and ask any questions. Any questions at all about this alpaca's well-being. You're bonded. Care. Health advice. If there's something you don't know, Any. you can just you just give them a call, give them a ring. They're Doesn't matter what time it is. It is a rule. Bonded for life. If the alpaca is sick at three o'clock in the morning, give that person a call. Absolutely. It is an unspoken Preferably rule. Preferably between one a.m. and five a.m. is the best time to call. <laughs> it's exactly. 
I just think it's cool. I wonder, I wonder how many, you know, because he said, you know, he he definitely called his people. I think actually named them by name, which we might have to block that out. Sure. <laughs> but but you know, he's called, you know, the people that he's bought his uh alpacas from. And I wonder in his, you know, experience now in his journey, how many people call him? When does the student oh. become the teacher? Good point. Yeah, that's interesting. Since his his pack number was 300 and now it's much less where have all those alpaca gone and have the parental figures of those alpaca reached out and i wonder if he like kind of gave them some kind of signal because he said it was an unspoken rule but he must have let them know in some way that hey call me at one o'clock in the morning (laughs) by now there must be a hotline But um, on his farm, so there's a there's a hierarchy or a pyramid, and with all the animals, and at the top, there's going to be, of course, the alpacas. So many animals. And the remaining animals, which there are a significant variety, all work to benefit each other, sort of a, a symbiotic relationship. So there's peacocks, and they're named. Yeah. You Wait, know, that was... can I list the animals? Please, please, please do. Okay, so... Outside of alpacas, we have turkeys, peacocks, rabbits, sheep, horses, ducks, chickens, goats, and pigs. And they all have very special roles. Yeah. We learned quite a bit of science and ecosystem and microbiology between this. uh, What I was so impressed with was the fact that how many times he brought up an animal's name. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, I was, you know, shearing Shirley. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, you have so many animals on your farm. And, like, he names so many of them. It just goes again to show, like, the, like, level of care that he has for these, for these animals. It's just not, it's not just mass production for money. Another reason to listen to the interview, you get to learn some of these fantastic animal names. And their purpose. <laughs> yeah. But then all of the other animals, yeah, they just kind of like help, almost like help with the process of raising these alpacas. I'm Jeff Sachsland. Yep. It's a oh, German that's name. Last name. I didn't it's a know German that. name. Yeah, it comes back to, uh, to uh, basically, it means search for land. Suchland. Yeah. That's, that's very appropriate. Suchland. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but yeah, that was, you know, from German, like my great grandfather started the farm. Uh, he was a cattle farmer, and uh, then my grandfather took over, and my father and my uncle, and then me. Yep, except uh, cattle were just a little bit too dangerous. So I decided I wanted something on the farm that wasn't going to kill me by accident. <laughs> and I'd never heard of an alpaca farmer being killed by their alpacas, so I thought I was pretty safe. Got it. <laughs> so far, so far, so far, so good. Injury, You've yes. you our questions. Death, probably not. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to work hard to, to die. From, you'd have to try to die. I mean, it wouldn't happen. They're not going to kill you. They're just going to injure you occasionally. But just you'll get a bruise. You're not going to get seriously injured. They get, yeah, if they kick you in the leg, that's about the worst it's going to get. Well, that's helpful to know your background. You said it was your great-grandfather? Great-grandfather, yep. And you steered away from livestock because you didn't want to Not livestock. I die. love livestock. Okay. Yeah, just cattle. Just cattle. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dairy cows are different. Dairy cows are very sweet, and they tend to docile. be much more docile. I have not spent much time with, with bulls in the dairy arena, so I really can't speak to that. But I can say that beef cows, they typically can be pretty dangerous. So you really have to have your wits about you. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, even if you do. I mean, I've known 
people that have been in in beef farming for for generations and decades, and they you know an accident happens, and that's it's not uncommon. So yeah, they're they're not as calm as the dairy cows, just in general as a breed, typically. But there are probably are other breeds. But I'm speaking about Angus, really. Not um, there may be some beef cattle that I don't know about that are super calm. Highlanders seem really calm. They're a beef cow. I would like to have those someday, except I stepped in too many cow patties as a youngster. That's why you see no cows on my farm. That and my friend got kicked in the head and knocked out for about 45 seconds when he was helping me when we had the cows. And that was the day I said, I am not doing this for 30 years. I don't want to discourage cattle farmers, though. I want them to stay around and do their job. I just don't want to be one of them. So your grandfather cattle raised cattle, and then your your father raised cattle as yep. well. And then... Obviously, you're, you're not. So, nope, not. Besides the safety influence, I mean, what's, I mean, I should say, was there a driving force besides safety or? Yeah, I saw he was working very hard. He was working 20 hours a week and he was at the most lucky to make $15,000 a year. And that was because he didn't have enough land to actually support the number of cattle he would need to have. Uh, even leasing, we leased, we actually had all of our property and we had another 100 acres we leased and he would truck stuff back and forth from there. But you really, to be full-time in cattle, you almost need a 1,000 acres these days. Less than that, it's very hard on a beef cattle farm to really make a full-time living. And, you know, that's, and he was working 15, 20 hours a week, making 15000 a year additional. That wasn't worth it to me because I knew I would always need a, another job. So when I moved us out of cows, I looked at the profitability. And this really goes back to what has happened uh, for over the last several decades, you know, that you had larger farms and uh, with the onslaught of industrialization and the the children getting older and going to college and finding other new careers outside off the farm, what would typically happen when the father would, parents would, would say it's time to retire, they would split the farm into just equal parts for each sibling. So in my father's case, there were five siblings. One of them moved so far away that she wasn't, you know, didn't really need the property. So so they worked it out where it was split between four siblings. But even with four siblings, you couldn't actually do anything on a hundred acre farm. You everybody got twenty five acres. That's you cannot make a living on twenty five acres as an animal farmer. It's just you, and uh, I mean you'd have to be more creative than I am. So what happened was my uncles, both my my uncle and my father, bought out their other two siblings, and that way they were able to keep the farm intact and they run it as a partnership. And they but they both were working fifteen hours a week. You know that's total of you know thirty hours a week between the two of them running the farm, and it was a part time thing for them, and they loved it. I loved that they loved it. It was, you know, but it wasn't going to be something that they could sustain and they wouldn't be able to pay. They would always need a second or they would always need a first job and this would always be a second income for them. So I said, well, if I'm going to take over the farm, I'm going to do something that will be profitable enough to uh, to be a full-time venue for us because I wasn't going to work another job and have a second job, which happens a lot. A lot of times people just get a regular job and then they have these fields that are growing and they just grow them for hay. They hire somebody to cut the hay and really the farm just becomes a gigantic backyard. 
which is not very productive for us, really. So, but if you're smart, you can definitely, definitely make some, some profit, but you got to be very, very specific, probably more on that later. But that's how I got into alpaca farming. I had been looking at it for years and I said, you know, we have a small amount of land. We don't have enough to do a cattle farm really to be full-time, but there's other animals that we can be profitable enough with where we could run them and the, the profit margin is higher and we can be smart about it and make a full-time living. So that's how I got into alpaca farming was I just knew that they would be an animal I could make a higher profit margin on than I could with the cows. Is this land like what was passed down from your yep, great from the grandfather? Great grandfather. Okay. Great grandfather. I'm sure if it was the same region. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's uh Yep, my uncle has his half and we have our half. Or was your grandfather still alive when when um you made no, the switch? he passed and then my my uncle and my father ran it for about 15 years on their own, you know, just as they were, because he was a retired Navy veteran and, and so he came back in 87 and then uh, he became ill and I took over back in, it would have been 2005. 2005. What's your, what's your dad think about the, uh, the switch? He would have loved this. Yeah. But I just waited until he passed because okay. we only had a couple years with him sure. and he loved the cows. So I waited sure. until he passed and then I sold all the cows and, and started the alpaca farm. Now, in the meantime, I was learning a lot about alpaca and, and just kind of formulating a plan because I really didn't like the way that, you know, most of the alpaca industry runs on, on animal sales. And, I really, and they've talked for decades, decades about how a fiber industry is coming and we are doing all of our breeding for, uh, for a fiber industry. Well, I have news for them. The fiber industry arrived in 2008. And if they haven't figured that out yet, they need to wake up and get with the program because that they, um, they, you know, selling an animal so that you can teach the people to buy the animal, breed it and sell it again. You can do the same thing with a poodle that is not sustainable in my book at all. So we don't do that. That's uh, that I'm looking. I know this for sure. The grass will grow. If the grass grows, something has to eat it. And if something has to eat it, Hopefully, there's a product that is sustainable from that animal so that you can have some kind of a living off of that off of that product. So I hope that someday the alpaca industry changes a great deal. And I definitely have strong opinions on what they should do to do that, but they're not quite ready to hear this. This is going to be controversial, I will tell you. Controversial, because they want to keep it, make baby alpaca, sell baby alpaca, breed for the future. Breed, breed, so that the fiber industry someday will be great. And I'm telling you, it's already so great, so great that there, there is fiber in North America, more than half, much more than half of what is grown in North America right now rots in the basement of the owners. I know, it's terrible. The fiber industry is already here, has been here for a decade. So it just need, it, this needs to change. If you're going to be a full-time alpaca farmer, you need to, you need to use your fiber. Yeah. I'm probably, I should tone it down a little bit. No, no. no. <laughs> I just, I just don't know much about fiber things. So no, well, that's, I, I mean, I'm just kind of absorbing. Well, shameless plug. I mean, I'm, I'm actually wearing an alpaca sweater, sweatshirt right now. Uh, and uh, so great. it's super soft and uh, it's great. Versatile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so, I mean, you started this alpaca farm 2008. 2008 is when I, I started. That's a great question. Sure. I don't know. I know it's Roughly. been at least 15 years or probably sure. a little more now. I just kind of tell everybody 15 years, but I don't really do the math very often. But I know when I made the decision to sell the cows, it was um, it was about a year or two 
I was shearing alpaca. That's a great way to know whether you have a good alpaca or not. You know, so many times people go out and they buy an alpaca and they've never even touched an alpaca. And the, owner, the people that are selling them say, this is a fabulous alpaca because it has these super great bloodlines. But a lot of times bloodline doesn't mean anything these days. It can. You can have really great alpaca that have great alpaca lines. But you can also have ones that have terrible bloodlines and people don't know because they haven't touched enough. I tell them, touch 100 alpaca before you buy a single one. I tell them, learn to shear before you, before you buy alpaca. Because if you shear an alpaca, you will know 100% if it's a good alpaca or not. You will not need anybody to tell you. But and I come from the background of my, you know, my, we talked about my father's line, but my, my, uh, my mother's side of the family were, they were sheep farmers. And they knew, all of them knew how to shear. Like, it, couldn't, it was unfathomable to me that you would have an animal on your property that you didn't know how to properly care for. I could not understand that. So I was shearing alpaca before I owned alpaca for a very long time. I learned to shear much, you know, a year or two before I before I was I even had alpaca on the farm. And for years, I uh, years I gave a clinic for people that wanted to learn because they're kind of uh, at the mercy of the shearers, the alpaca industry. The, the 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 people don't know how to shear their own animals, and they're quite frankly frightened of it. But it is a wonderful experience. It's a beautiful time with the animal. Because this is the time when I personally can spend at least 30 minutes with that animal. It's probably the most time I'm going to spend one-on-one -on -one with that animal for the year. So I can look at every little aspect of that animal, make sure it is completely healthy. But I can shear it and know that that animal doesn't have any other issues going on. I mean, outside of basic maintenance throughout the year, that is my very best time to do a complete physical on the animal. And if you hire a shearer to do it and they're done in four minutes, you will miss everything. You will, you will never, and it's traumatizing to the animal because, uh, just because of the way they feel about touch. So anyway, that's uh, my recommendation on that. Um, Is it similar to sheep? The shearing? Nope, not oh, at okay. all. All right. Not at all. Okay. Uh, sheep, uh, sheep shearing, you put them in uh, six different positions. And I do raise sheep. Obviously, you passed a bunch coming in here. <laughs> yes. My sheep are hair sheep for a very specific reason. Hair sheep means that the sheep, the hair will fall off every spring. They don't, they're not a dual purpose animal like some sheep are raised for both fiber and you'll make wool products out of them and also for meat. The hair sheep, it's strictly meat. And that's uh, because sheep create lanolin. And in my mill, I run only alpaca. Alpaca has no lanolin. They're like a gigantic chinchilla. They'll take a dust bath. I don't have oil in them that would cause an allergic reaction. So if I ran sheep's wool in my mill, uh, you don't get rid of all of the lanolin. You can get rid of most of it, but some of it builds up inside the machines and it will it will attach itself to the fiber of the, of the alpaca fiber and it will contaminate the alpaca fiber. And then when somebody that's allergic to, to lanolin touches your alpaca fiber, they can still have a reaction. So that's why I just only do alpaca and that's why I raise hair sheep. And for those that don't know what lanolin is, it's like a, a waxy... It's an oil. Yeah, substance. Produced by the sheep. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a great oil if you're not allergic to it. It's a fabulous oil. They put it in soaps and lotions, and uh, it's a really good oil as long as you are not allergic to it, which not very many people are. It's, a, it's actually a good oil. So then you essentially established your alpaca herd? Well, yeah, that's going... Yeah, we jumped like it. We jumped so many years, but yes, I did. <laughs> I sure did. Yeah. And then so, yeah, we were for, for years and years, I think probably eight years, we were the largest alpaca farm in the Midwest. Yep. I ran nothing less than 300 alpaca for about eight years. Wow. 
Yep. That was going to be my question. Give oh. us a number. 300. Wow. I don't have 300 now. Yeah. Nowhere close. But, and uh, yeah, there's a whole long story with the cycle of the of how things have gone in the alpaca industry. You know, back before 2008, it was it was pretty intense. You know, people were buying animals for thousands and thousands of dollars. And that still happens today. But that also still happens in the dog show world. You still have dogs that sell for thousands and thousands of dollars or even horse showing. You still have animals that have a higher level of quality that are worth the value of buying, of investing. And But if you buy an animal of that quality, you need to make sure you're adding to your herd tremendously. I mean, it needs to be, it needs to pay for itself, you know. And I I come from a background of, of uh, farming where we, you know, we know how, you know, how animals can be. I mean, no matter, even with the best care, you can go out and a ruminant can bloat and be dead the next day with nothing, not, no, there was nothing, nothing, you didn't do anything wrong at all, you know? And so you have to weigh that risk. So if you ever buy, you know, buy animals of that caliber, get insurance on them because you're going to want it if something bad happens. That's, uh, and you know, it's 90% of the time doesn't happen, but 10% of the time it could. So you got to be ready for that. I didn't go out and buy a single alpaca. I never said, I just must have this one alpaca. And that never, ever happened. I said, I need, I will. And this is what you need to know. These are unspoken rules in the alpaca industry. This may be the first time this has ever been recorded. This is really revolutionary. But if you buy an alpaca from someone, and I know, I, I don't think I'll get hate mail. I think everybody knows this. If you buy an alpaca from somebody, you automatically have the right to call them for the rest of the life of that alpaca if anything goes wrong. If you don't know what to do, you automatically call your mentor, the person that you bought the alpaca from. And th and these are unspoken rules. Like, who else are you going to turn to? And <laughs> and so you call you call them up and say, hey, my alpaca is not doing well. What do I do? Uh, well, so this has been going on for a very, very long time. And uh, so when I built my herd, I just said, I will buy all of your animals. I will not buy one. I don't want your best animal. I don't want your worst animal. I want your best and your worst animal and everybody in between. Because I know, because I was a shearer, and I still, I was a shearer for years, even even after we had the alpacas, I, had, I sheared for about 40 farms within about a six hour radius of, of this area from St. Louis, everywhere. In fact, I just texted somebody I used to share for today. I said, just checking in on how they're doing. They're down in Arkansas. Uh, but the uh, but I hadn't I haven't done that in probably three or four years as far as you know shearing. I just it's too costly for me to go anywhere any, anymore. But to go back to your to your question, I would buy the whole herd because I knew that I could go through and analyze every single animal, and I could say which animals are going to be profitable on a fiber farm, which is exactly what we are. We're a fiber farm. Our interest is in alpaca fiber, and we want to make alpaca fiber profitable. So in order to do that, we have to keep the animals on the farm that are the most profitable and the best producers. And that's not always factored in in breeding. A lot of times they don't factor in how much fiber. They'll produce super good fiber, but they don't. I had one animal on the farm for 10 years, and it never made enough fiber to pay its own way. But the fiber that came off of it was fabulous. It was just not enough. Does that make any sense at all? Like you get up, you get two pounds off of this girl if you are lucky. This is not a girl I ever wanted to breed. She never did breed because if you're going to be profitable in the fiber industry, you need a certain amount of volume. You need quality fiber and you must have at least five pounds off of one animal. Like nobody that produced less than five pounds on my farm ever stayed. They were gone as quickly as I could get rid of them because they're not going to ever make you money on a fiber standpoint. Now, I did have some animals that would produce 10 pounds of fiber. 
but five pounds. It's the target? It's the bare minimum. Oh, okay. The bare minimum. Bare minimum. All right. If it was below that, they were definitely not staying because I knew half of that was only was going to be, if you crunch the numbers, it makes total sense. Half of the fiber you get off the alpaca, that's going to be two and a half pounds. You'll have the blanket and then the rest is seconds. Most of the alpaca farmers in North America don't even know what to do with the seconds. They have a couple ideas, but most of them throw it away. And we make half our money. Half our revenue is from seconds and alpacas. We have zero waste on the farm for two reasons. I don't send it off to a mill. If I sent it off to a mill, I would probably lose 20 to 30% of my fiber just right off the bat. They would throw away anything they didn't want to run through two or three times through their machines. Yeah, we'll visit the mill later if you guys want to, but it's some... But that's, you know, that's, it takes time to do that. And if you're processing fiber and you're nine months behind schedule, which most mini mills in, in North America are, not, are like nine months out, six to nine months, depending on, like if you send your fiber off, you will not get it back within six months. You will lucky to be getting it back between six and nine because they're just that booked up. And I used to think for years they were making all the money. They are not. They're working super hard. They're, 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 making, they're not making all the money at all. And once I owned my own mini mill, I realized you're not making money. You're just working hard. <laughs> That's sure. <laughs> it was a revolution. That's a, so uh, anyway, uh, they're going to appreciate that. I'm sure if they ever hear this, but uh, they are just working so hard. And it's just the nature of the thing. You know, you, every, all your product comes in in April when everybody gets shorn. So then you, you can't be immediately caught up in April. It's going to take you months to catch up, which is exactly what happens. But I just wanted a little more control over when I made yarn because I like to make yarn in the winter and I wanted to have more control over it. So so then you vertically integrated from not only having your own herd, but doing the, what do you call it, milling of the fiber or not milling? I did. I, yeah. From, from having the herd of alpaca. Yep. I would do this reverse if I was ever going to do this again. I would get the mill first, then get the alpaca because then every animal you get is instantly profitable because you don't have to send your fiber out, learn to shear, get your mill. You can always mill for other people. I mean, you don't have to be as picky as I am. It takes all the fun. I don't shear for, I don't mill for other people anymore because I learned pretty quickly. It takes all the fun of it out. Because if they say, I want this animal into sport weight, two, you know, two ply sport weight or something, I will guarantee you that animal probably doesn't want to be two ply sport weight. <laughs> it might want to be a lopy or a worsted weight or, or, an, or a bulky, or it might be want to be a lace weight. It depends on the fiber of the animal, the length, the staple length, the crimp. These are like these are things that you have to take into account. You can't just say, "I just want all my animals into sport weight two ply." That's uh, but that's what a lot of times happens. And then the mill owner has to do what the person says, even though for me that was not much fun because I knew this this yarn would have been much better as a worsted weight, a two ply, three ply, whatever, uh, or or some other you know different type of yarn. And I like to blend. There's 21 different colors of alpaca. You can blend them into a million different combinations. I don't think I've ever made the same yarn twice. And I could make it. I keep the recipes, but I don't really want to. I want to make, I want to make yarn that's, you know, just different than what I made before, you know? So it's really more of an art form than a... Yarn making is really an art form. And so having to do what somebody else wants you to do is like saying to an artist, just, I want you to paint a replica of, of another painting. That is no fun. I don't know if that makes any sense. Because you're not creating from no, scratch or, or using your own skill sets because you're trying to copy instead. Exactly. You're copying, and that's no fun to me. It might be fun for lots of other people, and they might say, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> but it wasn't fun for me, so I, didn't, I don't do it. 
it's but I have plenty to play with and and you know so that's what I like to do. So yeah, I I realized if I was going to do it backwards, I would have gotten the mill first because I did have to train myself to learn how to use the machines. And before that, we were spinning on a wheel, but it wasn't profitable. It, you it would take fifty hours to turn one animal into yarn. Yep, that's about a dollar an hour or less. Yep. So you really <laughs> nowadays one animal we can turn into yarn in about five to eight hours with the with the mill if we're running it in the mill. Yeah, that really is a game changer. So we can expect to make somewhere between six and eight hundred dollars on the fiber that each animal on the farm produces. That's very interesting to learn. I didn't think about where you might be milling. I didn't think about it being on the farm and I hadn't thought about you so much as an artisan. As much as a farmer, but now I've kind of have this uh, changing perspective of how I view you and the vast array of skill sets that you have. Well, I, I, I tell people I'm, I'm a yarn maker and a sausage maker. Those are the two things that I love to do. Yep. Everything else is extra. That's, uh, but those are the two things that I really love doing. And, those, and both of those are artistic in a lot of ways. A lot of expression, flavor yeah. expression. and yeah. Other, mm-hmm. yes. So I was going to ask you about all of the other animals that people might be hearing here <laughs> in the recording. There are a lot. There are a lot. It's taken me many years to kind of develop. It's a mini ecosystem. Indeed. Everything gears around alpacas in some way. And that's why that's most, like all the animals on the farm, with the exception of rabbits, probably. Rabbits don't really do anything for alpaca. And you'll see them running around. But most, I don't collect random animals. Everybody has a job. The peacock, you may hear, his name's Fred. There's a ginger and a Fred. And he paid, they both pay their way. Uh, Fred will lose his feathers. And we, we sell the feathers for a dollar each. But they just fall out. And I go around and pick them up after breeding season and uh, collect them and put them in a jar. And then people buy them. And then ginger will, will usually hatch out about 12 babies a year. And, and then we will sell those for $75. So they'll... But they are, birds are excellent at detecting predators. And he will make a call. All the animals know the call. And they will, they will like be on alert. If they hear that call, they're going to know that there's a predator and they need to, you know, protect the babies. Well, I heard that and I actually, I noticed, did you see, there was a, like a falcon or a mm. bird of prey circling over here. And that's when that's, so I was kind of like, yeah. Yeah, I can hear the, the hierarchy of the alarms being sound and sounded. And I was just curious about all of the animals. There's yeah, numerous, you... <laughs> uh, there's numerous examples of that. The chickens go through the poop actually, and they will, uh, they will eliminate parasites in the poop and help keep the animals uh, healthy that way. So they just go through and they'll pick through it. And uh, you will rarely, if ever, go to an alpaca farm that doesn't have at least chickens. Many times they're kind of hesitant to have other animals due to their fear of the, of the animals introducing additional diseases. But, uh, but if you do it right, actually uh, the animals will strengthen your herd. And, you, and they actually are, can be mutually exclusive, which is why I have horses. Horses are a tremendous help to me. I wouldn't be able to run what I do or do what I do without at least six horses on the farm. And not even for riding. Not for riding. <laughs> anyway, that's, uh, uh, but I do ride them every week and I love doing that. That's, uh, and I've trained most of them. Most of them came off of rescues. But yeah, horses are critical for a certain parasite. They, they have a different digestive system. So they annihilate a parasite that is super deadly to ruminants. Ruminants are animals that like goats and sheep, alpacas, antelope, giraffe, water bison, 
people know of all kinds of ruminants. They just don't know that that's a ruminant. If it's got a split hoof, multi-chambered stomach, and no upper teeth, it's a ruminant. So goats and sheep, alpacas, any camel, cows are ruminants. And there's a parasite that will live in their first stomach and suck all their blood out in 20 days. And if you only do a herd check once a month, you can, within 20 days, they lay 5,000 eggs a day, mature in 10 days. So by the 10, day 10, they're laying 5,000 eggs a day. And those eggs mature after another 10 days. So in 20 days, it takes three days, and you have an animal with no blood in it at all. So, wow. <laughs> so most, an, most alpaca farms, they give a shot to their animals every single, every single month. That, it just compromises their ability to build up any kind of natural resistance to other parasites. They're actually preventing a parasite called meningeal worm. It's carried by the deer in North America. And it is, it is 100% fatal. So, that, you know, they give a shot every month to their animals for that. But ducks, ducks and chickens as well, but ducks are great at eating slugs and snails. Slugs and snails are the medium for that parasite. So if you have a bunch of ducks and uh, I use runner ducks. I run runner ducks on my, on my farm and they will, uh, they will eat all the slugs and snails. I learned this from an organic... Uh, winery. Instead of using pesticides on the leaves and everything, they would just run runner ducks down the down the rows and the ro and the ducks would eat the slugs and snails and protect the vines. Same deal with us. If they uh, uh, they will eat the slugs and snails and prevent that parasite. Yeah, goat farmers rarely worry about it, but they're just as susceptible. So, anyway, that's the problem is we have so limited parasite, you know, deterrence so that you know they're giving shots that are similar medications and then that affects the animal's ability to to actually fight off other parasites so they're just you know and then you would create super worms you basically create because not a, when you give them a shot you you're going to kill 80% or 90%, but 10% is not going to die. And then those are immune to what you're giving them. So over a period of time, all you have is parasites that do not, that are not affected by, you're killing the meningo worm, but you're giving a great opportunity to all the other. You're just creating parasites that are, are going to someday come back and annihilate your herd. Now that's partly why I put together the ecosystem so that I didn't have to do that. So now the only animal on my farm that gets a shot is one that needs it. So I have animals on my farm that I have never had. Like I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't had a worming in two, three years because they don't need it. It's called a Fermacha chart. F-A-M-A-C-H-A. -A. You look at their eyelids and you see if they're pale. And if they are pale, they need a worming. There's a chart. So more about that on another day. But honestly, it's a great technique because you help your animals become become disease resistant and you treat the ones that need treating but the ones that you don't that don't need treating don't get treated and that uh, saves you money for one you have end up having much healthier animals um, it's a good it's a good system that's what I've been using for years I, how did we get on that topic that's I was that, asking about all the other animals that you had yes, and I was so there was a mm -hmm. alpac sheep then alpaca or was there a particular order that you started to everything, crew all of everything started with alpaca yeah okay number yeah. one <laughs> yep they started with alpaca and then we got goats the goats are fainting goats so they don't really help with disease in fact a lot of times they can be a carrier of disease because they're so hardy goats are very very hardy compared to alpaca so you would often have an alpaca that would would not be able to handle a parasite load that a goat could easily handle. 
So a lot of alpaca owners won't have goats because of that reason. But goats, these are fainting goats. So if a predator comes on the farm, they're going to fall over and the, and the alpaca will run to safety and the goat will be, the one goat, whatever goat it is, is going to be the one that is unlucky that day. And <laughs> But I have been doing this for 15 years and you will be shocked to know I have lost zero goats to this method. And I've still managed to lose three alpaca, but they have saved a lot of alpaca. Because goats are so tough. They are so tough. You can staple them together and give them penicillin and they will likely live. But alpaca, not probably going to happen. It's just, uh, just goats are so tough. They're so tough. Military uses goats to train their corpsmen for this reason. Uh, goats are very tough. And they are, my goats are a protection layer to, for my alpaca, as well as the Pyrenees. We do run several Pyrenees. I don't know if you met Crystal. She's usually on, on duty, but it is, it's the middle of the night for her. She's nocturnal. She's a great Pyrenees. You, you met Cooper. He's a Pyrenees and Great Dane Cross, but, but the Pyrenees are really the main protectors. They run the bad things off, but that usually happens at night. What type of predators do you see? Well, you would be surprised. Our biggest threat is our neighbor's dog. Yep, I have lost uh, more alpaca, more animals to my neighbor's dogs than I have lost to actual wild predators. But coyote are a concern and mountain lion are a concern and bobcat. So bobcat, mountain lion, and coyote, I would go coyote, bobcat, mountain lion in that order. Yeah, the, uh, the mountain lion, as long as, that's why the hogs are here. The hogs keep the mountain lion away. That's how I got into uh, to raising hogs about 10 years ago. We were losing alpaca to mountain lion. And so I really had to change a lot of the ways we were doing things. I run the hogs in the forest and they eat all the acorns and the, and the, and the clover, and they also eat all my weeds. They just root it up and eat a root first. They like that better than grass. So they will do, they're my weed eaters, but they're also my acorn eaters and they're my brush clearers. They put a, they put a goat to shame. They, <laughs> they put a goat to shame. Like, I'd be embarrassed to be a goat. They eat 10 times what a goat does. And they will clear a forest so that there's nowhere for the mountain lion to hide, and the mountain lion goes away. I haven't. Okay. I was going to ask you how that worked. I that's was like, is it because do mountain lions like acorns and they ate all the acorns? I, no, I figured it wasn't that. It was a landscape change, basically. Yeah, landscape. All of the underbrush is exactly. cleared they out. Can so they're hide. Some... Like the Pyrenees were running the mountain lion off three years before I knew it was here. I just know that wow. because I know the history of the animals. They would run off and they would be chasing this animal and they could have been chasing a fox or they could have been chasing a, a bobcat. But I also think they were chasing the mountain lion because I know like that whole forest area right there, you can see that by May was so thick, you couldn't see through it. You couldn't see 10 foot through it. Now you can see, you know, all the way through that acreage and all the way down on both sides. We're bordered by, by a, tree, a tree line that runs all the way from the state park straight down and right, all they have to do is cross 47, but they can stay in tree line the entire way. And, and they will, and they'll be right here at, at my back door. And that's really what was happening because alpacas are deer in slow motion. They are like just, they just are deer that just are in slow motion. Much easier. You could actually probably catch an alpaca with a little determination, but you're probably not going to catch a deer anyway. Well, that, that's very interesting. Yep. That, that, that's, and we haven't really had any, any mountain lion problems since we started running the hogs. And with that, thanks again to Jeff Suchlin of Alpacas at Troy. We appreciate your time and expertise. We look forward to seeing you at many of the farmer's markets in the region, including Tower Grove Farmer's Market, Lake St. Louis, U City, Ferguson, Boulevard, Saul Food Farmer's Market in Maplewood, and Point Labadee. Brewing, our brewery. 
There's also a web, a couple of websites that you can tap into, tap your tap root into, and order yourself some sausages. You could have bratwurst delivered to your doorstep. Front porch handoff doesn't get much more fresh or more personal than that. Bratsoftheworld.com. Similarly, alpacasatroy.com for dryer balls, insoles, and... And your yarn needs. And your yarn needs. Don't forget the felted soap for the kids and your camping trips. That is right. This is Tangled Taproot. It's a production of Milk and Hummus. I am John Cowan. And I'm Jackson. I'm Kristen. We hope you like what you've heard. Please like, share, and review us. Again, thank you so much for listening. Send us your thoughts to tangledtaproot at milkandhummus.com. We plan to answer any questions that we might receive from your email, so please send away. Also, any recommendations, suggestions, or passionate farms, farmers, growers, people, homesteaders that you would like us to feature, please don't hesitate to send a message to tangletaproot at milkandhummus.com. Thanks for tuning in. 